Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Empire of Light. Phil, this is just static frames with darkness in between. There's a little flaw in your optic nerve. So if I run the film at 24 frames per second, It creates an illusion of motion. An illusion of life. So you don't see the darkness. Out there, I just see a beam of light. And nothing happens without light. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Empire of Light, and the story is as follows. A romance develops in a beautiful old cinema on the south coast of England in the 1980s. The film is starring Olivia Colman, Mikiel Ward, Colin Firth, Toby Jones, and Tom Brooke. It is written and directed by Sam Mendes, and here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Tom O'Brien. Hi, everybody. Cody Derricks. Hiya. And joining us as a guest here on the podcast for the first time, we have Yasmin Kendall. Hello. Hello, Yasmin. Thank you so much for joining us here today to discuss Empire of Light. Of course. I'm excited. Great, great. So I want to just first do a little table setting here. Empire of Light had its world premiere at the Telluride Film Festival. It is a very personal film for Sam Mendes, probably the most personal film that he's made yet in a long-running line of directors telling semi-autobiographical uh, stories about their own lives. There are some elements here that are taken uh, from his relationship with his mother. Also, too, he wrote this during in lockdown during the pandemic, and he had a lot on his mind. He was going through, obviously... The you know possibility of the death of cinema at the time, the Black Lives Matter movement, and so he's taking like all these uh, themes, mixing in a little bit of Brexit in there, and trying to come up with something here that was deeply resonant for him. Doesn't work though for a regular audience. Shot by Roger Deakins, scored by Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, starring Olivia Coleman. There's a lot of elements at play here, but does it all fully come together? I'm going to pass it off first to our guest here, Yasmin. So tell us all, what did you think in general terms of uh, Empire of Light? I think I was in the minority of liking it quite a fair bit. 
I do think there are issues with it, of course, um, more so in the writing and the kind of plot um, more than anything else, tech-wise and all the kind of craft stuff, I think, looks amazing. Um, but yeah, and I, and I think in a perfect word, Olivia Coleman and Michael Ward would be getting award season buzz for this. Okay. Passing it over next to Josh Parham. Josh, what did you think of Empire of Light? Uh, so... I found this movie to have some elements in it that I did really appreciate, but, oh man, I feel like there are so many issues with the story overall with this one. Um, I mean, obviously, I think Sam Mendes knows how to craft a movie, and definitely the you know cinematography, the production design, all that is gorgeous. Olivia Coleman, I mean, at this point, she can kind of do no wrong. It's a great performance once again from her. But the construction of the story, I did have a lot of problems with. It felt like it was very all over the place in terms of the themes it really wanted to talk about. And some, I think, it explores better than others, particularly uh, its Black lead. I had some significant problems with the way that Sam Mendes decided to kind of frame that narrative and explore that character. I did not feel like that was quite sufficient in my opinion and i i felt like a lot of this movie just sort of i appreciated that it was going for a bit of a slice of life but i also felt like it was trying to tackle on so much more that it didn't really have a great grasp on exploring that in a satisfactory way to me so at the end of the day the movie actually did kind of very underwhelm me and i was left pretty distant by it so there's things to appreciate but overall i did not really find it to be that great of a film honestly all right cody derricks over to you sir so sam mendes is a director i have a little bit of trouble grasping his artistic purpose if that makes sense i've seen all his movies and i find very little linking them beyond aesthetic you know obviously a lot of them have like the roger deakins cinematography or the thomas newman score which this one does not have thank god um but i i just don't really see what he is striving for as a filmmaker i find him much more easy to kind of graft onto purpose-wise as a stage director so watching this movie which is clearly so personal to him i found it similarly kind of confounding uh, the, the, like Josh was mentioning, the themes and the story itself are very kind of slapdash. Um, but when it's not trying to be about something, when it's not trying to be this big purposeful statement or exploration of society's ills, I found it quite lovely. All the scenes that are more slice of lifey or are talking about the power of cinema, which is apparently like the thing we're doing this year, I guess, I found quite enchanting in a way and also the movie looks incredible the roger deacon cinematography is fantastic the art direction is spectacular um olivia coleman obviously gives an amazing performance she's once again playing somebody who is trying to hide their sadness as best they can but not doing a good job at it which she is the best person i wouldn't say in hollywood but probably in the acting world period who can do that right now so overall i'm i'm fairly mixed on this because when it wasn't doing its you know big statement moments i did find it quite enchanting all right and tom o'brien Oh, man, I so wanted to like this film. I mean, I, I remember early early last summer we had we were, had a group chat about our um, first set of Oscar predictions. And I think we all had this pretty high, given the pedigree involved. I mean, you got Deacons and Coleman and Mendes and Reznor and Ross. I mean, they've all won Oscars. It You know, that resume just seemed like, OK, this is going to be a player. 
and and it's set in a movie house in the 80s on the English coast. It's like, okay, sign me up. This sounds great. Well, I mean, I finished product though. Uh, you know, actually, I kind of like the first five or 10 minutes with Olivia Coleman wandering through the theater, turning on the lights. It's like, oh, I love this movie theater stuff. Let's keep this. I, I could watch her turn on the lights for half an hour and I'd be just fascinated. I'd be fine with that. And I thought that the, the in, initial introduction of her fellow employees was pretty good. You know, they seemed eccentric enough and that, OK, this is going to be fun. But then then the romance starts almost right away. It's like, wait a minute, we don't know these people, you know, who, how, what is the attraction here? And I, you know, both, uh, Warren Coleman, of course, uh, Coleman's such an amazing force and, um, Mikhail Ward seems really promising. Um, but they have zero romantic chemistry together. I felt it seemed like they just rushed into this romance and um, from that point on, there seemed to be at times forks in the story. And almost inevitably, I felt it took the wrong path. It's like, no, no, no back up, back up. You had a really good story here. Don't follow that. But they kind of go down this, and this path. And when, you know, in the last half of the film, they start taking on the big, important issues of mental illness and race relations and stuff like that. Uh, it just it was like, oh, no, why are you doing it? Um, it's it's the crafts, as as uh, Yasmin said, are, are by and large great. And, you know, but it really doesn't matter if your story doesn't work. And I just think that for me, at least, Empire of Light was a series of missed opportunities. Yeah, I think it's very, very clear at this point in Sam Mendes' career that he needs there to be a writer for him to direct the screenplay or at the most he could be a co-writer, but I think when he's left to his own devices here where he's the sole credited writer, uh, clearly there are some issues and I do see where he's coming from and I do feel for him because, you know, he really did pour a lot of his own heart and soul into this movie Hearing him talk about it, like during you know various Q and As, and when I saw it at Telluride, and listening to him talk about it afterwards as well, you know, you really got the sense that this was very important to him. So, if you have like any affinity for his work, you know, you you do want to be kind to a certain degree, but also too, you got to call it like you see it. And I remember walking out of Empire of Light and thinking, okay. I like all of these individual elements. And I remember that's where my brain like initially first went to. God, it looks gorgeous. I love the vibe of it. Olivia Coleman, the score, ah, you know? And so I remember my initial reaction was one of what seemed like praise. And then as I was like walking out of the theater and it's like, I'm ruminating on it a little bit and I'm like thinking to myself and I'm like, you know what? That was a mess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that didn't work. It didn't work as well as I wanted it to. And the way that it ends, you're kind of left with this feeling of uh, almost like Patricia Arquette in Boyhood. I, I thought there would be more. And that's how I ultimately felt by the time this movie concluded. And it's kind of incredible for me considering how well I think it starts and it sets up its uh, main character. And I was really excited for the possibilities of where it was all going to go from there. But ultimately then tries to tack on so many different themes, especially in the third act, that it doesn't allow itself any breathing room to explore it. Now, I do think that the movie 
is very broad and can work for a broad audience, but it doesn't all, it doesn't challenge you. It doesn't ask you to engage with it in a way that would reveal any new information. It is just telling us stuff that we already know. Cinema is magical. Racism is bad. You know, it's like people are imperfect. I, I don't know. It's like like all these things where I, I like kind of just like shrugged when it was over. Um, all things considered, from a story standpoint. Yasmin, you sounded like you are the most positive person here on the movie. I, I would like to hone in a little bit on what you like about the film. I, I mean, because I think we all like certain elements of it, but it sounds like you like the film most overall. And and this is not to you know challenge you or anything like that. I just want to know like uh, what what was it about it that like worked for you? Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, I, I share similar thoughts with the majority of you anyway on the story. I do think it's a bit muddled and it is not entirely sure what it's trying to do. And it it's like touching on each theme a little bit. And then it's like, you know, what, we're going to try something else. And then doesn't quite finish that either. And that really bugged me. And I guess it's been a while since we all saw the film now. So I'm excited to see it again next week and see what I like really think of it on a second watch. But I think... I think as someone who lives in England and is English, I think there's a certain level of, I want to say like pseudo nostalgia about this film as well. Mm. And just like, especially someone who's from like a coastal English town, like to me, it's like, oh, it, it feels quite homely. Like I see elements of my family members and Olivia Coleman's character, um, and I, I actually think the characters are written very well. It is more so like the thematic kind of dialogue and those kind of plot lines that aren't written as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think it, it it's a fantastic cast as well, which is just one of the big things that draws you in. Obviously, you have Olivia Coleman, Michael Ward, but then some other English greats like Colin Firth was fantastic in this film. Um, and other people too who like... I'm, I'm sure you guys know Tom Brooke from like Sherlock, but he's a bit yeah. of an English treasure as well. So I think it's quite easy to be charmed by it um, yeah. in a way. But I, I definitely do agree that there are issues um, that are hard to look past. Tom Brooke, really quick. I think he's almost like the stealth MVP of this film. Yeah, he really it, is. I really, really loved every single time he was on screen. Any scene he had with a character where he was empathizing with them or explaining either Hillary's backstory or whatever it was, I was just saying to myself, wow, I kind of want him to get, you know, I I want to see a movie where he's the lead, not like this character, but just Tom Brooke in general. No, yeah, I totally agree. Like, I feel like he brings so much personality to all his roles and so much charisma. Like, he deserves 
so much more than he has right now. So hopefully we'll see him soon again. Yeah. I felt that way about Toby Jones in this movie, who I thought mm. had a had a pretty small role as this kind of like grumpy projectionist. But I thought he was pretty fantastic. He has one scene towards the end that's all about him and his backstory. And it's really brief, but he gets one moment where he's allowed to just display a like quiet range of stifled emotions across his face. That is. Yeah really excellent and it's you know just one of those reasons you hire like a pro for a small role like this i thought he was maybe <laughs> secretly one of the best performances in the movie <laughs> i i thought it's the same thing too cody uh, although in the moment i completely agree with you but because the role is not substantial enough and si- similar to tom brooke as well i think this can be said for uh the, pretty much the entire supporting cast they don't leave that much of a memorable impact that, you know, a couple months remo- removed from watching it. It wasn't until I rewatched Empire of Light that I was like, oh, yeah, Toby Jones does have a scene in this. Like, I had completely forgotten about it. But he's sturdy, like a sturdy, reliable actor. And and I did appreciate that. I also will admit that, yeah, because the roles themselves are not, as you said, that substantial. It is sort of like, wow, you came in and, and gave me this great moment. Wish I had more of your character to kind of appreciate this for, you know? It's, it's like, yeah. great that you had this moment, but now I'm just reminded that, oh, yeah, there's so much more you could have done here. And I think it just signals that this movie has a lot on its plate, it feels like, at times. And for some other elements that maybe could actually be a little bit more interesting, it doesn't really go into that. And what it does focus on, I just don't think it does so very successfully. And his was the one character that has the love of cinema that I was hoping to get out of this movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not really a true kind of love of cinema type movie at the end of the day. Well, what do you mean by that? Because I I do think that, uh, spoiler alert for the record, for those that uh, haven't seen Empire of Light, by the way, but I do think that when Hillary is in the theater towards the end watching being there, I mean, isn't that what that whole scene is ultimately about? I mean, yeah, that is what that scene is about. I'm talking about, like, the thematically as a whole, though. Like, I don't think, like, if you were to ask me, like, what is this movie about? I don't really think it is about, oh, appreciating the love of cinema. Like, it, it that's one thing that it's about, but it feels like it has a lot of other stuff that it's also talking about. And I think that the whole appreciation of movies is really just one theme out of many that are in this film. And that is one of my issues with it. Now that I know the distinction of what you're saying, I agree with you on that. I think what the movie is about, though, it's not so much about the uh, quote unquote love letter to cinema, like like movies, but it's more about how the cinema itself, like the actual movie theater, the place is the thing that no matter your race or Uh, If you're suffering from mental illness or you're a grumpy person in life or whatever it is, it's the one thing that, you know, can bring different people together. I think that's what he's trying to get at as a unifying theme. And that's why also the movie feels overstuffed because he's trying to throw in all these different facets of uh, people's uh, interior lives. And ultimately, it ends up being too much for the movie to handle. Yeah, that that is my kind of big issue with it. And really the bulk of that is everything with Ward's character. Like, I almost feel like if that was not in the movie, I don't think I'd have so many issues with it. But I just found everything from the perspective of that character really is also just mostly through 
Hillary. I feel like, you know, we get some scenes with him, with Stephen by himself, but I feel like most of the time we are just with Olivia Coleman. And I just don't feel like him as a character is that well defined. And the more nuances that we do try to explore with him just feel very kind of surface level observations of racial tensions around this time. And I... I did not really feel like that was a character that was really well utilized. And he's such a big part of the story that it felt like he was really flatly drawn. And it's a very big, as I said, a very big chunk of this narrative. And I did not feel that was really well explored. And for taking up so much time in this story, I had a big problem with that. Yeah, the elements in the film of uh, racial equality and British nationalism feel very broadly drawn to Josh's point. It almost feels like something that would be in a movie from the 80s or 90s that would be very Oscar Beatty. Which is fitting because the movie takes place, what, 1980 to 1981, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It would be – it's like a movie that would be playing in the theater in the movie. And I think that's true of a lot of the themes in the movie in general. I think it's just very broad and kind of obvious at times. I mean everything around Olivia Coleman's character is so very – again obvious in its themes you know there's the scene with the the wounded bird and her name is hillary small it's all just very surface level and obvious mm-hmm. which i'm not opposed to generally but i think the movie wants you to think it's smarter or deeper than it actually is i will say in regards to mckeel ward i understand sam mendes's heart is in the right place i understand that while in lockdown the black lives matter movement happened and you know, obviously, this is not something new, racial tensions uh, within uh, England or where, wherever it was that he, you know, wrote this and grew up, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this is obviously a worldwide issue. But I think that most filmmakers just need to hear the message that you need to stay in your lane and stick to what you know, <laughs> because I think that this is just a great prime example of. An attempt was made. There were good intentions, but you're clearly not well versed enough in this subject to be giving this sort of a commentary. Right. That That is the big problem, because it's just there's like no real interiority with him is my thing is it, it just everything that he does is through his relationship with her. And as Tom said, like, there really is not that much chemistry. They're romantic relationship just begins very abruptly and it's i did not really buy that initially and it's like this is a dynamic that would be so fascinating to explore because there's so many like complexities and nuances at play here and we get some of that from olivia coleman's perspective from the hillary character but i feel like none of that is explored with him and we even get moments of of times that are without Hillary, where we do see a little bit more of his own domestic life, but nothing is really explored there that I found to deepen that character at all. And it was just very frustrating that the significant player in this story who is contributing so much to the overall thematic commentary just is so incredibly broadly drawn and shallow. And that was that was very, very frustrating. And it sucks, too, because for Mikhail Ward, this is supposed to be like a big breakout role for him. And I fear that he might need another opportunity because of the reception that the movie has had specifically around his character, the themes that his character is uh, supposedly representing. And, you know, I, I saw him in this movie a couple years ago called Blue Story that 
he completely blew me away in that like he was phenomenal in that film and so he's been on my radar for a little bit i remember he won the bafta rising star award as well so he's been up and coming and this i feel like was supposed to be almost like kind of like a Hollywood welcoming party movie for him. Like, oh, a new star has arrived. And I just sadly don't think that the perception is there. And he's trying his best. I think he does have a good screen presence. And I I, I do enjoy watching him. But I just sadly think that he is underserved by the writing. Yeah, I do feel like he is doing his very best. And, you know, Sam Mendes is lucky that he cast somebody as talented as Ward is. He injects a lot of personality into this character that has very little dimensionality. He's one of those characters that is, I don't know how to put this, a movie that has to deal with important uh, hot button themes. And the person at the center of those themes is drawn so positively. He has no bad qualities. You know, the worst thing that he does is like kind of goof off at his job. And it's kind of that obvious writing that feels really reductive and old fashioned. I do think in terms of opportunities for him, though, I'm not sure because like, I guess it's completely different in America. Like, I guess you're saying you saw him in Blue Story, but like we know him out here as the boy from Top Boy. But I don't think Top Boy is a really big thing in America, is it? Well, let's ask. Has anyone here seen Top Boy? Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. Yep. Sorry. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm sure it's right. I am unfamiliar. Top Boy is, it's on Netflix, I'm pretty sure now, but Top Boy is a very, very, very big deal out in England. And every time there's a new season, it's like, it's like a public holiday almost. It's actually, it's ridiculous. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a big thing. It's quite it's a it's like a london drama basically um and that's what people know him for the most um and i know he's starring in a film with bill nye that's in post-production as well mm-hmm. so i i do think he is still a huge like rising star and i i hope like the Amer- North American perception of him doesn't change too much because of this, because he is phenomenal and he is still really young. I think he's only 24-ish, 25, something like that. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I agree. I do hope it doesn't hinder any of his opportunities, but he is, I think, much bigger out here in the UK than he is in America. Now, what, one element of the movie that I actually thought that Sam did do pretty well, and a large reason for that is Olivia Coleman is the depiction of her mental illness as a schizophrenic. Um, I especially thought that because in the beginning, when we it, when we're introduced to Hillary and Cody, as you pointed out, her name is Hillary Small. She keeps to herself. Every gesture that she does is very reserved. Uh, she's very timid, and watching Olivia Coleman uh, when she then get, goes off her meds. Uh, then just become like this unpredictable sea of volcanic rage and frustration. And she's unleashed. She's unfiltered. She's really unstoppable. (laughs) Like Coleman just becomes like a force in the second half of this movie. Um, I I actually thought that while the commentary, once again, is light, Olivia Coleman, I thought, was doing wonders to elevate the material. See, I I kind of disagree. I, I okay. agree that I think Olivia Coleman is, again, Sam Mendes is very lucky that Olivia Coleman is as talented as she is and she's <laughs> able to inject such life into this screenplay. 
But I think the once again, the depiction of mental illness was extremely broad and nonspecific. And I, I thought everything up until we got to her apartment that she's holed herself up into was fine. I think her she has a scene where she has a kind of like public almost breakdown that is pretty well handled for the most part. But once we see how she's been treating herself on her own in isolation you know we get to her apartment and there's like writing on the wall and you only see some of it that says stuff like mother whore and like kind of these really obvious things that feel again very old-fashioned and reductive and olivia coleman she does such a good job in those scenes that you kind of can i think excuse a lot of it but i think the writing and directing are really just not doing anybody any favors there Right. I, and I do think that scene at the movie theater where she does have that kind of public display, I will actually give the movie credit for not doing the thing that I thought it was going to do. And it is I don't I don't know. I don't know if I want to say subversive, but it, it is a little unexpected right. what you see her do in that moment. And I did think that that was kind of an interesting choice. And then you get this like brilliant monologue that she's giving afterwards to Colin Firth, which is just this amazing like Shakespeare uh, soliloquy with a, a twist on it that I was, was very fun to watch. But let me tell you something. If, if to fuck or not to fuck, that is the question does not become a meme on the internet. <laughs> oh, and, and what made that moment even better was that you could faintly hear the chariots of fire theme in the background. Like, it, was, <laughs> it was so weird, but it was like, this is, I, I don't know whether this is like terrible or brilliant, but I, so that whole moment was, was great. But I do agree that once we get away from that and we get the real descent into her condition, yeah, that's when it becomes a little bit less interesting from a character perspective. But all credit to Olivia Coleman for at least keeping me interested in watching those scenes because, man, she is just brilliant with anything that she does. I think that's what I'm saying is that, like, I feel like the movie would absolutely crumble. And for some people, it does. Uh, for me, it barely stays afloat because she is the uh, one element of this movie that gets the most focus, the most attention. And because of how talented she is, uh, she's like it, it for me, at least for me, she's able to just barely save the movie. Yeah, I think by the time we have those big moments of hers, I was kind of out of the movie. So I was sitting back and when she would have a huge outburst, I said, oh, that's her Oscar clip. Oh, no, that's her Oscar clip. Um, <laughs> because a lot of this just seems to be designed um, not for the character, but for the, the shock value of the film. I, I thought you were going to say it seems to be developed to win Oscars. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's not going to happen. I mean, in a way, you know, when people talk about the term Oscar bait, which I do think is getting overused a little bit too much nowadays, this is actually, I think, one of the best definitions of that that we've seen this year because it has these quote unquote important themes. It's got all this pedigree. It's got these flashy moments that allow for, you know, its star to uh, deliver an Oscar clip moment. But yet on this, like on the surface, all this all these elements are there. But if you dig deep, it's actually more hollow than it thinks it is. Mm. Yeah. And that, to me, is the biggest problem, as as I have said. I think that this movie would have been so much better for me if it really didn't try to go for all of these big, heavy themes. And I think it's mostly successful when it's trying to be more, more quiet and really just focusing in on a character study with sort of these things happening in the background. And I think the problem with the narrative is that it's trying to do both. and 
one, I think it just does better much more significantly than the other. And I think when it tries to go for these bigger ideas and these bigger themes, it just really fails because I don't think that the story has the capability to dive into those subjects with the complexity that is necessary for it to be impactful. I mean, tell me this, when you're watching her opening the theater in the very beginning, the credits are playing, Trent Reznor, I guess Ross's score, you're seeing Roger Deakins, I mean, like, talk about taking the ordinary and making it look extraordinary. Oh, yeah. B- beautiful. Oh, even though, man, that popcorn was just sitting out there all night. That is some stale popcorn. I had popcorn. the same thought, Josh. Oh, my God. I used to work <laughs> oh, at a movie theater, God. and my saying. first note was, ew, overnight popcorn. <laughs> no. Nobody does that. You pop it fresh in the morning. Like, what are you doing? You'd be surprised in England, honestly. You would <laughs> It's not, yeah, I don't get my popcorn from the cinema out here, I'll tell you that for free. Good to know. <laughs> but, um, you know, in the, in the very beginning, I, I, I was filled with such promise, because I, I thought that intro was phenomenal. Of course. Like, truly. Yeah. And I know I'm focusing on, like, a very, very small part of the movie, and obviously nothing else had happened up until that point. But even going from that and just being introduced to Hillary and her world, her life, both at work, um, obviously the... Uh, harassment she suffers from Colin Firth's character, the manager, and then seeing at home she's alone and she's having, um, you know, we don't actually know much about her at that point. I, I, I thought the setup for the movie was phenomenal, and even when uh, McKeel Ward's character gets introduced, at first I, I, I was thinking to myself, okay. He's he's just young and looking looking to have sex and and she you know this is a bigger deal for her and like I don't buy it that this is happening like they haven't done a good job of convincing me that the romance is there but I was still going along with it it was after that though that then the movie once again it never kicked into like a higher gear for me in terms of well what is this about why is this important why does any of this like matter and it got jumbled because eventually, I, like I said, I eventually understood what, what Sam was trying to convey, but it, it was a mess in, in in trying to get there. But I mean, like I said, the first couple of minutes of this movie, I, I was on board with it initially. It's a good setup. Yeah, I, I do agree that the crafts of this movie are impeccable, and I think it does a good job of kind of inviting you into the overall tone and feeling. but. I think if that was more applicable to a simple character study, it would be much more effective. And that's what I thought we were going to get. That's what I was hoping we were going to get. Yeah. As we go further, we get we get tuned into, no, this movie's actually trying to do a lot more, and it just doesn't go that deep into it. Yeah. And all those elements are there, the things we want to see, and he just constantly chooses the wrong thing to follow. Mm-hmm. I think there is there's a, an, an element almost of the cinema complex being its own character too, and I thought that was so interesting for a bit. And then like it's that whole bit where they go up into the whole abandoned bit, and this is what it used to be, and it used to be so grand, and it's like applying that to modern day and kind of a bit of the crisis we had with cinema over the pandemic and everything, and being like, wow, like it's so beautiful and it's it's gone kind of thing. And, and there was so much emotion in that bit for me, and then. They're like, okay, moving on. Uh, not going to talk about that anymore. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. When they go up to the abandoned uh, movie theater upstairs, mm-hmm. 
I, I really think the production design of this movie is actually not getting the praise it deserves. Yeah, for sure. I agree. It's pretty yep. spectacular. Totally. Yeah. And this movie has the capability, just even from a production design standpoint, in recreating a classic cinema from the 1980s, it just really made me, as somebody who still loves going to the cinema and kind of reviles the fact that movies so quickly go to VOD nowadays and that people prefer to watch stuff from home, um, you know, sometimes for the right reasons. Admittedly, that's okay. But, like, sometimes for the wrong reasons. And I think that the depiction of the cinema and not just being in the seats and watching the screen, but literally all aspects, the lobby, the concession stand, and even this abandoned old cinema, the production design just does such a great job in making me both feel nostalgic for what the cinema used to be, and then also, too, hopefully for what it still can be. I will say part of the thing that I found so lovely about this movie was very personal in that I used to work for a long time as a uh, employee and then manager at a independent two screen movie theater that was built in the twenties. So a lot of this, I found really extremely accurate to working in a movie theater like that. So just for my personal bias, I found that very enchanting and lovely, which I feel like are words I keep using over and over again. But again, that's extremely personal. And I think if people don't have that connection outside of loving movies, they might struggle to really connect with this movie. But you still get that feeling for sure. I wonder if you showed this to somebody who is kind of meh on going to the cinema, like doesn't really have that appreciation. Right. <laughs> It'd be like, who cares? <laughs> well, I want. I wonder though. I do wonder, you know. But you know, I, I imagine they probably wouldn't focus on that. You're right. It's depicted so lovingly that you might still be able to be romanticized by it in the same way that, like, I watch something like Jerry Maguire and suddenly I'm like, I, I understand sports. I get it, even though I really don't in real life. It's, it's so well <laughs> exactly. done that way that it might, like, break through the wall of empathy. I mean, when Olivia Coleman is, like we said earlier, like, when she's watching being there at the end of the film, I, I, got, I got goosebumps both times I watched the film. Uh, part of that is because of the performance, uh, Roger Deakins' cinematography. And Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score for this film, my God, I, I know it's like your kind of like basic atmospheric piano score, but I just I, I don't know about y'all, but like I love scores that are so soothing that can just put my mind at ease and like help me fall asleep at night. So I really, really love the score <laughs> between this and Bones and all. They're having a really good year as well yeah. for score. Mm-hmm. I found this their score kind of anonymous. Unfortunately, I, I agree, Matt. I do think it is very lowly to sleep and that it could be playing in like the waiting room of, of a spa. Which again, and I've I've made my distaste for Thomas Newman very apparent and loud. So I'm I'm quite happy that this isn't a Thomas Newman score because the, that would probably bring my entire rating down by a whole star if it was. I could just hear what that would sound like. But I still think the Reznor Ross score is a little bit obvious, which I guess that is appropriate for this movie. Yeah, I mean to be honest, it sounded like not that they were going for an exact impression of Thomas Newman, but it definitely found I found it to be influenced a little bit by what Thomas Newman normally sounds like in this movie. Only for me, it was not quite as effective. I am a fan of his, even though, yeah, I understand the the criticisms of, of his scores, but I, I mean, I still like the music overall. I, I thought that it fit well within the tone of the movie. And just on the subject of, of, um, 
Reznor and Ross, I just appreciate how diverse their music style is now. And when they first came onto this the scene with like the social network and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I felt like we had an idea of the kind of scores they were going to make. But just recently, it's been so diverse and so many different kinds of scores out there. And I am very impressed with them as composers now. So I would agree that this is not like their best work, but it it fits the movie well enough. And it is just an example of how talented they are to work in so many different kinds of, of genres of film scores. Yeah, on a personal level, I'm just a sucker for piano. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say also too, like just going back to Deacon's uh, cinematography here uh, for a moment. I think a combination of his camera work, the score, and this, and this is going to be a bit of a knock here, but the simplicity of the story. And I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, once again, because for a general moviegoer, this is not a bad thing. Obviously, I think for us, we want a little bit more. But this is such an easy movie to watch. Yeah, It is until it's not, you know? Like, I, I, I think it is disrupted in its loveliness quite uh, point, point, like, to a point on purpose. Mm-hmm. Purposefully is the word. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think maybe that is probably wise because that is, you know, sometimes how life can feel when it's interrupted by these atrocities. But I, I, I do think it's a little bit up and down at times. I mean, and we're, we're talking about like up and down. Um, I do think that after Hillary has her outbursts at the Chariots of Fire premiere and then the subsequent scene with her at her apartment at home. I think after that, the movie gets completely lost. Like, it felt like to me that that was the closure of her character arc. And all we then needed to see uh, was her learn from that, grow, and then move on. But then it segues into a whole other section here with McKeel Ward's character, as we've illustrated before, is not that well explored. It feels tacked on. And so then they have this final meeting together in the park. And at that point... I was once again, like I was expecting for there to be something more, but instead it's just two characters that are like, yeah, this happened in our lives. Best of luck to you. Which still could be interesting on a certain level. And I actually think like maybe if their relationship was a little more platonic and they were just exploring how they come from very different worlds, essentially, like it would still be very surface level. I can imagine that. And, you know, I can see where that would go wrong, too. But at least it would add like another dimension to their relationship that would not have been quite so predictable and pedestrian. And mm-hmm. instead of just exploring this romance where it just seems to happen out of nowhere and they really don't learn all that much more about each other in a significant way, you know, we get to the end and it's like, OK, it, that happened all this resolved the way that I thought it was going to resolve without any real growth or development be- between them. And yeah. it was like, why did we spend all this time with with this relationship that really didn't do much to deepen the themes, to deepen their own dynamics with each other? And it just felt like a waste of time and exploring things that were just which is not well done, not well executed at no. all. I, I, and I think that. The, as you had said, Beth, the the the, emo- the emotional character arc high point is the when the door is broken down in her apartment. Yeah. If there was only a moment when uh, 
Stephen could have come out of the apartment's closet. They have a moment together. He, she picks up her bags and walks out, and that's the end of the movie. I'd be fine with that. But it just seemed like spinning wheels for the last 15 minutes. I mean, Josh said something that actually, uh, the more I'm thinking about it right now, I think this would have been a better movie and would have actually forced Sam Mendes to deliver something a little bit more uh, nuanced and complex. I, I, I actually do wish that the relationship was platonic. And there was this desire, but there was this tension of, will they act on it? Will they not act on it? I, I think that would have been so much more interesting now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, because as it is, it's just like, oh, we just have to have a romance between them because that's just what is going to happen in this movie. But I don't really find that what would motivate. I mean, I get the motivation for her. It's mostly him. Like, I I don't really understand what would motivate him to be into this relationship. And not that I I don't like agree that they should be in a romantic relationship. But if you're going to do it, you need to give me more of that perspective from him and as a character it just feels like he has very few objectives in this story and most of them are through her perspective and i just i was very resentful of that as the movie went on all right let's get over to uh final thoughts here on empire of light anything that we didn't mention that you want to bring up or reiterate uh, yes, I mean, we can pass it over to you first. Uh, so, like I said, anything that we didn't talk about uh, that you want to bring up or something you want to just uh, reinforce? Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are we are always unpacking that very question on sleepover cinema check out sleepover cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com see you soon yeah i think at the end of the day i I think we all have similar feelings around the story and and themes and i think it will be a film that resonates within a British audience more so just naturally um, in the way it's crafted. But I do think as an ensemble, like what a strong cast and they really bring it together at the end of the day. Like, I don't think the direction is that strong. Like obviously there's that personal touch and you can really feel that. And we've, we've kind of talked about that already, but I don't think it has the precision to kind of tie together what the script is lacking, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I am excited for a second watch and to really kind of culminate my thoughts and be like, okay, this is what works, this isn't what works, and this is what I think, because I don't think I fully got that in the first watch. I think I wanted to like it more than I did. But um, overall, I, I I do think it's a well- made movie i'll repeat that like craft wise like i think it's worth watching just for that alone and for olivia coleman uh but the story definitely is uh lacking i will say i don't think there's anybody on this podcast right now that wanted to enjoy this more than me because 
when you when you're spending thousands of dollars to be a Telluride for only three days and you don't know what the lineup is and you realize one of them is Empire of Light and you're like, yes, okay, this is going to be one of the big Oscar contenders this year. (laughs) And you're hoping that like your weekend is going to be worth it uh, because you'll see, you know, movies that will challenge you, movies that will be in the awards conversation and just movies that will ultimately reward you. Man, I like like Sam Mendes did not make it easy. <laughs> he really didn't. Yeah, it was t- I mean, I had a uh, this year at London, it was such a busy festival and this was one of the only films I saw there, mm-hmm. which was a, it was a bit of a shame to come out and be like a bit mixed on it. So I get what you mean that festival disappointment is just not fun. No, not at all. All right, Cody Derricks. So I've mentioned the cinematography being gorgeous, which it is. It's Roger Deakins. However, so much of this movie's thematic power is cut down by the very fact that it's shot on digital. The movie's all about there's – there's a whole monologue that Toby Jones gives, which is in the trailer, heavily featured. And it's about how the power of film is because of a flaw in your eye and our eye doesn't recognize the space between frames. And it's like a metaphor for the characters' lives and all this wonderful things about the power of literal in the very literal sense film, actual physical film. But the movie shot on digital. And it just it, it it feels like almost like not a slap in the face exactly. It's very dramatic, but it feels not fully thought out, which I think is kind of true of a lot of this movie. I don't think I'm surprised that Roger Deakins didn't choose to shoot on film. He hasn't shot on film probably in, I don't know, 20 years, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. But it just really is a bummer. And again, it looks gorgeous. It's about if you want gorgeous digital cinematography, you can't do any better than Robert Deakins. This reminds me of uh, when Mank came out and Josh had similar you know, feelings about the cinematography of that movie where it's like I just threw my hands in the air. I have the exact same feelings about. Yeah. Mank. Yeah. Cody and so I were very aligned on that issue. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Really, really, really frustrating. I would like actually like to ask Sam Mendes about it because I, I, I want to know his thoughts on why. The movie is so centered around the power of film. It almost feels like shooting on digital while talking about how good film is feels like a like it's like a funeral. It's like this thing we used to have. And people are still shooting on film to this day. You could have done that. You know what it is, Cody? It was that Sam Mendes wrote the story and he always works with Roger Deakins. And he said, can I get you to change this one time? And he said, no, I'm not. And I bet you that's exactly what it was. Exactly. It's just because really he's not going to not work with Roger Deakins. Like, no, and I, I get it. Why wouldn't you? He, it looks gorgeous and they've done amazing work together. But oh, my God, I, I would argue that if he didn't work with Roger Deakins, then like I sometimes I think Roger Deakins is a shield for Sam Mendes sometimes. I, I completely agree. I was somebody who was not sold on 1917, but I think a lot of that movie's power and acclaim was because of the cinematography. I think Roger Deakins really carried that movie on his back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that about. A lot of Sam Mendes films that, yeah, <laughs> Roger Deakins does uh, do a lot of the heavy lifting. <laughs> I need you, Roger. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, we all do. <laughs> yeah. Anything else, Cody? No, that was my 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 one thought I didn't mention before, because I, I again, I do think the cinematography is gorgeous, but it also is a problem <laughs> with the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It does undercut the themes of the film. <laughs> uh huh. Tom O'Brien, over to you. Well, this is kind of nitpicky, but it's also a personal peeve of mine. Whenever I see things about movies that are set in specific times, for all the way, almost all the way through, they got the movies right on the marquee. You know, it's they were all 1980s movies. It was Blues Brothers and Ordinary People and Raging Bull and Gregory's Girl. And then for the big moment at the end, 
it's being there. You know, in the 1979, it's like, what? Yeah, wasn't all that jazz also featured at one point? Yes, I think so. Well, I mean, yeah, to I, be I, fair, they are in England, which does have a you know different release schedule. But yes, yes. I, I do think that, yeah, by the time being there, that was 1979. And, and at that point, I think we were in at least 82, yeah. maybe 81. And 81. it just felt like, man, I don't know if this movie would still be in theaters, even in, even in British cinemas at that yeah, point. Yasmin may know more about British release delay schedules than we do, but I know oh, that... Oh, don't get me started on <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I, I figured you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, English release schedules are kind of similar to European schedules in general. Sometimes we have things perfectly on time, don't get me wrong, especially when it comes to, like, big blockbuster releases and stuff, but obviously that was a very different time in cinema Mm -hmm. um where those worldwide releases obviously we didn't have as much like globalization back then so things weren't releasing at the same time um but yeah like you get things out here that won't like i'm pretty sure the whale has been a big conversation because that's not releasing until february and obviously you have it in new york and la now i think Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah there definitely is delays on english releases yeah, but just being there did for feel the, weird. <laughs> yeah, I just so I just looked it up. It, well, being there was released in the UK in mid nineteen eighty in the summer. So, you know, this is back when movies would kind of just sit in theaters for like the better part of a year. So, like maybe maybe it would still be there. Yeah, yeah. I'll 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 be willing to give a little bit of leeway here for that reason alone. Yeah, I think but I did have that same thought, Tom. It's like for the most part, I felt like that it was on track. But yeah, to end with being there, a movie that came out in '79. I don't know, even for the time period, if it would still be playing in cinemas. But you know, I went with it because I do love that movie, and I, I yeah. liked at least what they were going for. I think very clearly, Sam Mendes was like, "We have to have being there," and it was like, "Damn the year!" Yeah, <laughs> so that probably is what happened. Anything else? No, that, that that's my pet peeve. Okay. Josh? Um, I think the only other thing I would mention here at the end is that we didn't really talk a ton about Colin Firth. Um, Not that there's, (laughs) I think, much to really discuss, but I think, you know, at the end here, might as well just mention that, yeah, he is in this movie and he does have a somewhat significant part. Um, I, I mean, I would definitely say that there wasn't much impressive necessarily there, but, you know, Colin Firth is usually a reliable actor, but I will admit that he wasn't given that much to do. And it's a very small supporting role. So I don't really I never really expected there to be much, but like he's just kind of fine in this movie. I'm just acknowledging that he is here. I never really expected to hear lines coming out of his mouth in this movie that I heard yeah. either. Uh, yeah. Uh, some, some of which that uh, <laughs> I don't even want to say them out loud. <laughs> Well, we don't have Will here, so he would give us the line reading. Oh, I, oh, yeah, he totally would, for sure. But, like, even his first line in the movie, I was like, oh, 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 he's playing that kind of character. Okay. Yeah, I mean, again, another one that's very broadly drawn, but, I, I you know, it, it's a very small role. I didn't really have as much issues with him being in here because I get – I got what his purpose was, and he more so is there to – get good work out of Olivia Coleman, which yes. hey, if, if that's his only purpose, then I'm fine with it. So it's not much of a role, but I thought I would just at least acknowledge that. Yes, I know the conference is in the movie, but he just doesn't do that much overall. Talk about being overqualified for the job. Yes. Yes. Anything else? No, that was it. Okay. And then for my final thoughts here, um, well, we talked about the bird. 
you, you know, like there, there's a certain point in, in the film where you feel like it should be over and things are wrapping up. And then all of a sudden they decide to introduce uh, Steven's mom. Yeah, it's literally that scene in the hospital, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. it's like, why now? Tanya Moody uh, plays his mom and like she shows up for only a few minutes of screen time. And once again, kind of just like reinforcing what Josh was saying earlier and a bunch of us were echoing. It just feels like there was so much more backstory worth exploring there and deeper characterization for Steven that just felt like it was left on the table. And so I just thought all of that was a missed opportunity. Oh, very, very much so. Like when she was introduced, I thought, okay, this is maybe something that would be an interesting element to factor into this now dynamic, because like, I'm sure she would have opinions about what her son is doing and her feelings would be complicated and they flirt with it. But once again, just do not go into it sufficiently enough. And it was just one more element to this, the overall package of this character where it's like, there's potential here, but none of it is really mined in a satisfying way. There is one other line reading from Colin uh, Firth that I do want to say here uh, because I thought it was like kind of the most pitiful, saddest line delivery I've heard this year. Uh, It's when he tells Hillary about his wife. She won't even make me a cup of tea. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) and just like the the British sadness in that in that man's eyes. The alternate title of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I thought the New Year's Eve fireworks celebration sequence looked amazing in terms of just like nighttime photography, uh, whether it was shot on a soundstage or whatever it was, probably was a probably was a green screen if I had to take a guess. But either way, it looked stunning. And I thought Deacons, once again, just Deacons, 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 it doesn't get any better than him. Uh, the use of poetry in this movie. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know if that's just Sam trying to flex a little bit or if there is deeper meaning within these poems that is worth exploring. If there is, I haven't had the time to dig into that, so I apologize. I'm, I'm sure there might be, but. Yeah, I'm sure, but I'm, I admit I'm a dum-dum when it comes to poetry. I've never been able to really get it myself. <laughs> like, I... I I freely admit it. I'm sure that there is some deeper meaning, but usually whenever I'm watching a movie and somebody starts reciting like verbatim lines of poetry, I kind of check out. But that that Gosh, is a me I'm, problem. I'm the same. I it's yeah. like Greek. It's literally like Greek to me. <laughs> and <laughs> so I know sorry. it probably makes me sound so stupid, but I I'm, I'm just gonna be honest. Like it's that it is not a a storytelling device that is very successful for me. <laughs> so I love Olivia Coleman. I love the cinematography. I love the score. There's a lot here that I do like. And I think that the vibe of this movie, it just, just, just barely puts me into a positive territory. And I think it's like an easy enough watch that it's easy to recommend to most people. Most people being people that don't regularly watch a ton of movies like we do. Like, I feel like I could recommend this to family members and they would be perfectly okay with it. Uh, I'm going to give it an extremely, extremely weak six out of ten. Even even though I like I I really think in my heart of hearts, I'm probably at a five, really. Uh, Now, I'll I'll stick with the six. Um, At the end of the day, it didn't make me angry. I was just disappointed. Yasmin, what about you? Great out of ten. 
Yeah, I think I agree on the six. Maybe a 6.5. No 0.5s. No point five. <laughs> no point fives. Oh, dear. Um, six. Okay. Welcome to the next Best Picture podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. Cody? So initially I'm watching it. I was at a seven just because I found it. I've said this word more times today than I have in my entire life. Quite lovely. But discussing it and thinking about it more and reading other people's opinions on it more, I really do think I'm at a six. It's a strong six. And I'm being not a huge fan of Sam Mendes. It's probably in my like top three of his movies. But I still think it's pretty half-baked. Hey, at least you're not that one tree that keeps getting quoted everywhere saying it's the best film he's ever made. (laughs) (laughs) That's not true. Um, He's made worse films. He's made better films. Not a lot of better films, personally, I think. But no, not his best film. Tom O'Brien? Yeah, at the end of the day, if I look back on it, I can say, I really don't like this film, so I probably should be a five. But the things that are good in it are so good that it's got to push me over into a red tomato. So I will give it a a light six. Josh Parham? Well, I will break up the six party here, and I will commit to a five out of ten. And I do agree that there are things about it that do work, and I was uh, captivated by. But what doesn't work in the movie does bother me a little bit more. So I didn't outright hate it, but it was incredibly flawed, and I I can't really say that it was a movie that I recommend that I could recommend. But I do recognize that there are some good good elements here. So a five out of ten is where I'm landing. Okay, and in terms of the movie's Oscar potential, it's interesting because you know obviously it being the December release for Searchlight here, getting the premiere spot at Telluride. I think they, you know, obviously had high expectations for it. Uh, The critical reception has been mixed negative in a lot of cases. And so I think they're recalibrating and they are putting all their full weight behind Banshees of Inishirin for their best picture play. But that does not mean that Empire of the Light is out of the race in a couple of categories. And I think that the four that it is still contending for with nominations are Olivia Coleman and Best Actress, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, and Best Original Score. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and minimum, it will get cinematography. Oh, okay, so you think that's the minimum? I mean, Roger Deakins is getting nominated. <laughs> that is, I think, a guarantee. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a tough year for that category, but I think he's you know he's he has Roger Deakins. He's as close as a, as he get to a rock star in cinematography. Yeah, he, there's always going to be a spot reserved for Roger Deakins. Yep. Yeah, and Sam Mendes is a really Academy friendly director. The only movies of his that didn't get a single nomination were Jarhead and Away We Go, which are very kind of odd movies. This is not an odd movie. It is so down the middle in terms of what the Academy likes, especially this year. There's there's so many movies about reckoning with cinema in the past and blah blah blah. And yeah, I think it probably is cinematography is his best chance and then actress. I think that maybe is it. I don't think it gets into score or production design just because of the type of movie it is and how crowded this year is. But I, I think it's cinematography, if nothing else, is definitely happening. How do we feel about Coleman today? Boy, I think I have her around seven or eight. I have her at number six right now, but I got to admit, I'm tempted to put her in there. It's just hard because I don't know who to kick out. Yeah, it's tough. That's a very competitive category, but yeah, Olivia Coleman, like I, I have her at five right now. So like she could miss for sure, but people just love her so much. And I kind of feel like she might just become like our new Meryl Streep where a new movie with her. Yeah, just 
get her in there. So, I, you know, it's tough because the movie itself is not as strong as her, and that is going to make it more difficult. But I kind of feel like until I'm proven wrong, just always bet on Olivia Coleman making it into a lineup. It almost reminds me of last year with the Best Actor lineup where we wanted Peter Dinklage and then they defaulted over to Javier Bardem because it was safe, it was simple, it was easy. And in a lot of ways, I feel that way about Empire of Light and Olivia Coleman, where we like her. Uh, the movie is a safe, simple and easy movie for Academy voters to love. And, the critic- and critically, we're not really on board with it. And... I just, like I said, my my issue is I don't know who to knock out for her. Yeah, I have her at number six right now. And the thing is, it would kind of be a you're in the club nomination, but it is also a great performance. Is it anything we haven't seen her do before? No, it's, you know, it's, it'd be the fourth nomination for her where she's smiling with tears in her eyes. It's something, it's, it's a lot of stuff she does very well, very frequently. And it probably would be her least exciting nomination of her. What would be four nominations? I do think there's a very strong chance it could happen just because of her name. Um, But it would still be a good nomination. It would not be a like default nomination. No, I, I, what worry? What we still haven't seen is Naomi Aki, right? And that that could potentially could be a number five or a number six. It's a crowded category for sure. Yeah, you also have Viola Davis. You got Jennifer Lawrence, Margot Robbie. I mean, it's it's brutal. And anybody that we supposedly are ranking ahead of Olivia Coleman, like maybe there is a shocking miss there that she replaces one of them. Like when things get really competitive like this, that's when you get very shocking things happen. Yeah, I'm anticipating some really crazy things to happen at SAG in particular. Mm -hmm. And that I think is going to really shake things up in terms of, oh, wow, so and so is vulnerable. And Olivia Coleman's right there. So, yeah. Production design. Does anybody see it happening? I, Cody, you mentioned it's a competitive category. I do agree with you on that. And I do think that there are more deserving choices. But this also does kind of feel like the kind of thing that they would do. Even if it's like we don't like we think there are more worthy choices, but it just I don't know. There's something about, once again, the way that the cinema is depicted in this and how, like you said, lovingly it's depicted that that just might appeal to some voters at this current point right now. I just checked and it wasn't even in my 10. Um, I just moved into my 10 very low, but it is just a crazy competitive category, which we we keep saying, I know, but it, it truly is. Mm-hmm. I think the movie had to be better received, I think, to be considered. That, that's a fair point. I agree with that. Uh, and then original score... I, you know, I like the Bones and All score. I love the Bones and All score a lot, actually. But I think this is the more Academy-friendly score and movie. So in terms of which one of their works this year, you know, gets put forward, I think it will be this one. Uh, But in terms of it actually making it in, score is just as competitive, I think, as, you know, uh, production design is. I have it at number eight right now. I feel yeah. like score is maybe even more competitive this year. Yeah. Than production yeah. design. There's so many worthy scores this year that are going to be unfortunately uh, not nominated. Mm-hmm. And you also have a lot of branch favorites too. Uh, it's so so tough. I I, I honestly, I I think <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We're we're in for some shocking stuff in that category. I think. 
Yeah, I mean, I would say the score is definitely in contention, but yeah, as we noted, it's it's very stacked in that category this year. And I had it in my five initially, but as the season has progressed and we've gotten more contenders that have become stronger, I I don't have it in right now. I think it is in the 10, but it, it's tough in that category right now. Yeah, I have it missing as well, uh, which would then leave it with just, as we said before, Coleman and cinematography and nothing else. Which it could do. And as you mentioned, Josh, if nothing else, cinematography. Yeah, I mean, that is the minimum. Like, Roger Deakins is getting nominated. Like, we <laughs> can just accept that right now. Mm-hmm. I guess I should add it to my 10 for cinematography. It's done in your 10? I just took a look a second ago, and I, I realized I don't have it in my 10. I must have accidentally kicked it out for something, yeah. and I didn't realize it. And Yeah, you need to put that back in. I need to add it back in right now. <laughs> yeah, even if it is at number five, that needs to be in your 10. Like, Roger Deakins gets nominated for pretty much anything so i would put that back in <laughs> yeah yeah god damn it I, um once again i don't know what to kick out <laughs> yeah mm. uh, and i'm looking at everyone else's choices and what what they have in number six i'm like really you have that missing it, oh. <laughs> this is tough uh, yeah it it is because uh I, I don't think i've updated on the site yet but i have like another thing that i was looking at where i track my stuff and yeah, I, I made some moves, and what I have at number six is also a bit surprising, but, you know, th- that's what happens when the category is competitive. Like, somebody's got to miss. There's only five slots. All right. Well, that'll do it here for our discussion on Empire of Light. Yasmin, thank you so much for joining us here for our review. Tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Thumb with Yaz. Uh, that is the main place to find me, to be honest. I am always there. <laughs> okay, great. Lovely having you here. Thank you for having me. Cody Derricks, where can they find you on the internet? I'm all over the place at CodyMonster91. Josh Parham? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd over at J.R. Parham. And Tom O'Brien. And you can find me on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today 
such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.